Extraordinary. Leader. Innovative. Integrity. Honest. Courageous. Curious. Thoughtful. Brave. Unafraid. There is a place where technology and art meet, where work and play are one and the same. When the threads of curiosity are pulled in this place, the spark of innovation ripples across industries. Those who make this place their home are giants, titans who pursue creative passion while leaving their mark. Creative. Flexible. Brilliant. Clever. Confident. They are courageous thought leaders set on changing the practice of dentistry and their corner of the world. More than the sum of their parts, we deconstruct the traits that bind these uncommon innovators. Humble, daring, disciplined, playful, principled, spontaneous. To discover what makes them contrary to ordinary, where we explore the extraordinary. Hi there, I'm Dr. Kim Cooch, host and founder at Carry Free. I'm fascinated by what makes the paradigm shifters, world shakers, and art makers tick. Let's embark on a journey. Extraordinary is a place where ordinary people choose to exist. Together, we will trek the peaks of possibility, illuminate the depths of resilience, and navigate the boundless landscape of innovation. To discover how some of the most innovative dentists and thought leaders unlocked their potential and became extraordinary. On this season of Contrary to Ordinary, we explore the motivation, lives, and the character of innovators who see limitless potential around them. The people behind some of the largest paradigm shifts in the practice of dentistry. Before we start, I would like to wish you all a happy Thanksgiving. It's a time of year when we all reflect on what we're grateful for in life. This is the second part of my interview with Dr. Simon McDonald, and a little later in our conversation, we're going to be exploring some of the things that he is grateful for. In part one, we heard about a few of Simon's inventions and how he poured countless hours of blood, sweat, and tears into their creation. I wonder, where did Simon's drive to become a serial inventor come from? I was quite shy. I was redhead freckles and teased a lot. What was your favorite thing to do as a kid? Oh, I like playing soccer and chess and games and model airplanes and uh -huh. stuff like that. I think the model airplanes was a big part uh -huh. of my manual dexterity. I, I loved building Bolsera airplanes. Uh huh. Yeah, and flying them. And oh, okay. So you built the actual uh, flyable, like yeah. Balsa kind of yeah, airplanes yeah, with engines right. in the yeah, in the whole that's deal. right. Yeah. So you were building things even as a child. Yeah, yeah. I like making stuff. I was always making things. Uh huh. Or pulling things apart. See how they work. I've done that once actually at my local school where uh -huh. we got the kids to bring something in. Uh, that didn't work, uh -huh. and, oh, yeah. and pull it apart to find out what's inside. Because right. a lot of kids don't do that. And a lot of kids never have the opportunity. Yeah, I think that's a really important part of growing up. And when I talk to engineers, quite a lot of them talk about that, that they did that a lot. Uh -huh. They As couldn't help. When everything broke, they just put it. Sometimes they got into trouble for right. taking things apart because they couldn't get them back together. So that's a that's a trait that you have that you were kind of that you were born with that. Yeah, you had the kind of inquisitive uh, mind. Oh, my father was very encouraging of that stuff. Uh huh. He he had an engineering background. He would mend things. Uh -huh. I'd look over his shoulder, and, right. and see what he was doing. Yeah. So I think that I got that from my father. Uh huh. Yeah. So you you were curious even as a child. Very, very. I think I was one of those kids that's always asking why. Right. You know why is this and why is that and so many people couldn't answer. 
But uh, I, I never really lost that. Uh-huh. I've seen some parenting who just tell their kid to shut up. Stop asking right. why. I was like, that's child abuse, actually. Just, yeah. just tell a child that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You should encourage your child to yeah. be curious. Yeah. And... Tap with the patience to try and answer them. Yeah. So yeah, that curiosity so kind of spilled over. Really big time. Yeah. I, an... I'm curious about everything. I'm always researching something. You mentioned your dad encouraged you to ask why and tear things apart. I, I had an uncle who was an engineer as well. I suppose when I was about 12, he must have been about 30, and I really looked up to him. He was always doing something interesting. Uh-huh. Uh, he crossed the Sahara Desert in a Land Rover on wow. one trip, and uh, he got into all sorts of stuff. And he was into model airplanes as well. Uh-huh. So he was a hero of mine. Oh, wow. Yeah, he, he was a great guy. Uncle Bill. Another great hero of Simon's is the late Steve Jobs, who famously spent time with his own father disassembling electronics. Jobs' father encouraged his son's curiosity, and it's arguable that he might not have found the same dizzying heights of success without that early support and belief. Simon, as a curious person, has tried a huge range of things out over the years. I started doing a PhD, Uh and the topic was computer modeling of patterns of dental decay. Uh-huh. And if, if you look at uh, graphs of the instance of dental caries by tooth yeah, surface or yeah. tooth, tooth type, so DMFT yeah. or DMFS, and what we all know is that the most susceptible surfaces are the fissures, and there's a common pattern. And also it's related to the number of years that the tooth has been in the mouth exposed to the oral environment. So, for example, you know the, the first molar we all know is very susceptible. Yeah. and probably the most filled tooth there is. But um, as the caries rate increases, then in a population, you get an increased rate of, say, MOs on the first molar. You can plot out a pattern. Uh-huh. So I, I got dug up a vast array of epidemiological surveys uh-huh. that plotted age and DMFS, I used a spreadsheet, actually, to begin with, uh-huh. because ch- uh, another way of looking at it is um, there's a normal distribution of age of eruption. Uh-huh. So some teeth erupt early, and they're going to expose to carious environment. So right. a proportion of those would decay. And then if you uh, split the, the normal distribution by age, uh-huh. and, and I did a massive spreadsheet that calculated thousands of calculations this is one of, one of the first spreadsheets, actually. And uh, it worked. I could plug in a decay rate at 12, right. like a DMFT at 12, right, right. and it would predict the decay rate at every age, all the way through to 18, Wow! amazingly accurately. Yeah, yeah. But I never finished that either. It was an interesting academic exercise, but I yeah, couldn't yeah. really see an awful lot of value to yeah. it. I then wrote a program in Pascal, I converted the spreadsheet into an actual program right, and you yeah. just plugged in a number and it spat out epidemiological data. One of the things, studies I find really fascinating is the one that the cohort study is going on in Dunedin. And those yeah. individuals are now 51, two years old. The last report was when they were 47. Yeah. And watching the decay history throughout their lifetime, their decay rate, it just doesn't change, right? For the individuals that were very low carries rate at, at age three, 
they still are at age 47. And the ones that are high carries rate, they're still high carries rate at 47. It's like all everything that we've done as, as a profession hadn't changed that trajectory one iota. And it's just, that's fascinating to me. I mean, it's it's such a fascinating study because they're going to follow those people through death, mm. right? And there's about, I think there's still pretty close to 800 people in that study. And it's it's a unique study in the world. I'm sitting here thinking about the Dunedin study and how interesting that is. But having, taking that, I've seen a few studies that describe percentage risk for different individual surfaces geographically in the mouth for decay. Yeah. And I've seen that all plotted out, but I didn't yeah. really ever see anybody take it to the next step where they were use it to be predictive. Good on you. That was interesting. Some of that stuff did get uh -huh. published. As medical professionals, it feels like we're constantly trying to see the patterns in our patient's health. That's why regular screenings exist. And it's why we take so much care to examine genetic factors that might influence a patient's trajectory. The Dunedin Multidisciplinary Health and Development Research Study is super interesting because it spans such a vast amount of time and includes a huge amount of diverse people and data. If you haven't heard of it before, this groundbreaking New Zealand-based study had its 50th anniversary in 2022 and tracked not only the participants' dental trajectory, but also other factors around overall health, lifestyle, and a host of other factors across the lifetimes of its participants. The study participants are in their 50s now and are preparing for retirement. It will be interesting to see what happens to them in this next stage of their lives and beyond. People's health changes, and their motivation does too. I wonder what drives Simon now? I've got lots of kids that was a driver. Right, right. I needed to be a breadwinner right? because I had lots of children. Yeah. So that that's a big part of it. Was but, quite be, difficult. But, but would you be doing this anyway? Probably. I don't know. Yeah, I probably would. I, <laughs> I do get bored. I mean, I get bored. I can't sit on the beach for very long. I'm a participant. I'm not part of the audience. Yeah, right. You're not an observer <laughs> in life. You're actually no. a participant. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. very much so. You I know, don't really like going to audience things. Yeah. Not that much. Yeah. I don't really like going to the theater or, or unless it's exceptional. But You'd rather be working on I'd something. I'd rather be doing something. Doing something. Yeah. So you're a doer. I'm a doer, yeah. So how do you define success in your own life? I probably don't spend much time thinking about that question. I'm very appreciative uh -huh. of the success I have had. You feel grateful. I spend a lot of time being grateful. I think um, making a contribution and being grateful uh -huh. are really important. So you're not driven by fame or money. I did need the money for the children, well, for the we family. All, and we all did. Yeah. Uh, I was driven to be comfortable, but not. But that was never the goal. No, that was Let's never the goal. Let's do all this so I can be no. rich. No. no. So you're driven so freedom, more. Time freedom is important. Right. But it sounds like you would really want to make a difference. I do think now that's important. If you wanted to focus on gratitude and you wanted to be a monk and sit and meditate on gratitude, well, I, I don't think that's a very useful life. Uh, to me, you've got to add in contribution. You've got to contribute other people's well-being, and that's a wonderful thing to do you know, and gives a lot of pleasure to other people and simultaneously about yourself. Yeah, yeah so contribution and gratitude are a real big part of where I'm coming from. Yeah, so taking your gifts and then using them to help other people. And then when that happens to be successful and it helps a lot of people, 
you have a real self sense of gratitude for just having had the opportunity to do that? Yeah, I do. And I think a lot of problems we see in the world right now are a gross ingratitude. Every time you turn the tap on, you should be grateful that water comes out of it. Because look what happened to make that hair. Every time you turn on the kettle, that electricity comes through. Every time you flip a light switch. And you should be grateful for that. There's lots of people who don't have that. They don't have running water. They don't have electricity. There's probably more people on the planet that don't have running water and electricity yeah. than do have it. Right? Yeah. And to me, you, you could say to be mentally healthy, I think people need to say 10 things they're grat grateful for every day. And that might change their perspective instead of moaning yeah. about all the things that's wrong. Yeah. There are so many things that are right. If you do that, you start yeah. to recognize how fortunate we are. Yeah, we are and so all fortunate. the blessings we have yeah. around us, yeah. right? Absolutely, yeah. yes. That's a beautiful thought. What do you think the secret to happiness is? Uh, so I just said it. I think <laughs> yeah. that's it, really. That was it, really. Yeah, I think yeah. so, yeah. Being grateful. Yeah. And making a contribution. At this time of year, we're invited to give thanks for the good things that we have and think about those who may not be as fortunate. Gratefulness is a powerful thing. It humbles us and can give us a moment of mindful reflection in our stressful lives. In her book, Grateful, The Transformative Power of Giving Thanks, theologian and author Diana Butler Bass stresses that gratefulness is the foundation of all spirituality and may serve as a cure for a world divided. Indeed, she spends an entire section of her book talking about the neurophysical benefits of gratefulness. These include improved mental health, increased brain function, and stress reduction. Butler Bass says that gratitude is, however, more than just an emotion. It is also a disposition that can be chosen and cultivated, an outlook toward life that manifests itself in actions. It is an ethic. I invite all of you to practice the ethics of gratitude, not just during Thanksgiving, but all through the year. Another one of the things that Simon is grateful for is being able to sail around his beloved New Zealand. I sort of learned to sail when I was about 10 uh -huh. at a local sailing club and just loved it. Uh -huh. I, I thought about doing that as a career, actually, uh -huh. going to the sailing field. When I was a teenager, I bought all these books on how to make sails and design sails and stuff. Uh -huh. Yeah, but um, when my parents moved to London, then the, the opportunity to do much sailing dropped off. I, I was really keen on ra dinghy racing, uh -huh. and... Uh, that kind of, I lost, you know, through circumstance. I, I wasn't able to do that. And so most of my adult life, I've been too busy really to focus on that. I bought a catamaran probably about 15 years ago. Okay. And that, that was good fun. It didn't go offshore though. We were just, just in around New Zealand. And then I bought a big catamaran, a big Sun Reef 62 foot catamaran. It's a big thing. And sailed that up to Fiji. I, I've gone up on board about three times. I've skipped it up there and skipped it back. First few times I had to skip her on board. Right. It's, it's actually more challenging, I think, doing coastal sailing uh, where there's rocks you can hit right. than it is doing there's obstacles. Uh, yeah. ocean crossings. Yeah, yeah. As long as you're careful with the weather. If you listen to part one, 
You'll know that Simon spent countless hours creating some of his best-known inventions, the triclip and the V-ring. Maybe it won't surprise you to hear that he's just created something new. Yeah, so the newest product is a, uh, a lovely circumferential band that feels a bit like a Toffemeyer when you wind it up, uh-huh. but you just push the button and the carrier, stainless steel carrier, disconnects from the band and there's a little toggle. So, so the, there's a stainless steel carrier that tightens the toggle. Uh-huh. It's got a swivel on the front so you uh-huh. can use an any quadrant. And it's also formed. It's got a lovely contour. That's very so challenging. So it's double convex. Yeah, it's convex know, on both. Con- so it complete, creates the shape yeah, of the contact. Yeah, it's com- concave. Yeah. That's one of the problems, I mean, as we've shifted to posterior composite restoration, yeah. that getting the correct contact shape is so important. Yeah. And it, when you got a straight stainless steel band yeah. that's smooth, trying to, can get, restoration. trying to create that into a convex yeah. kind of situation. Yeah, it's challenging. So this is brilliant. It already yeah. comes shaped that way. It comes shaped. So, Simon, let me ask you this. Where'd this idea, this uh, wake you up at three in the morning? Where'd this come from? Uh, I have to go back a bit. When we sold Triadent, which is another whole story. Right. There was a product that a dentist called Adam Dudney, he, he approached me with an idea. Uh-huh. Uh, quite a few dentists approached me with an idea because I'd kind of become reasonably well-known in this country. Yeah. And I think that's an understatement. He thought that there had to be an easier way or a lower-cost way to make a crown. He had been pre-milling like an occlusal veneer right. on a ceric machine and then using a band and squashing it on them. I think we're referring to it now as kind of a flat-top preparation. Flat-top prep, yeah. yeah. And using bonding to hold it on there. Yeah. And I thought that was a good idea. But um, I, the matrix bands at the time, as we know, are horrible for that situation. Yeah. Um, a lot of them you can't tighten very tight, so they don't hang on what's left. Yeah. And also the shape of them was pretty, pretty grotty. And uh, so we didn't sell that concept. And that's where Rondium came along because uh-huh. we thought we could get that one sorted. And we went through lots of different versions. We had a kind of a semi-indirect method, right. which involved the dentist doing a lot of dental technician work chairside, yeah. which wasn't that popular. The concept of uh, being able to do a crown in a single visit in 45 minutes or less is very popular. Yeah. But the, t- the clinical technique is obviously the challenge. You know, again, if it was easy, somebody would have done it. Right. And the whole reason we do do crowns with a direct indirect method is because it's so difficult. We delegate it to a, a benchtop dental technician. Yeah. Who can look at it from every angle without the mouth and without the tongue and the cheeks and everything else in the road. Oh yeah. And they can spend hours on it, but we have to go through a temporary crown and a whole lot of other issues. So it was a pretty big ask to try and solve that one. And we've been working on that for about 12 years now. But I think we've finally cracked it, actually. The issues are when you're going to do a, a direct crown, you've got to have wonderful proximal surfaces. The buccal side is easy. It yeah. doesn't really matter. Yeah, yeah. Lingual side is not too hard. But yeah. the proximal surface is challenging. Yeah. And you, you need a nice anatomy and you need a hard-wearing surface. So in the final version that's just coming out now, it's very cool. We're going to do a, a digital version. Hi, contrary to ordinary listeners, we're going to take a short break from this conversation for our segment, Questions with Dr. Kim. Don't go anywhere. 
In this segment, I'll answer a listener's question about their dental health. If you have a dental question that you want answered, send it to podcast at carryfree.com. That's C-A-R-I-F-R-E-E.com. And add questions with Dr. Kim in the subject line. If your question gets read out on the show, we'll send you a small gift to say thanks for checking in. This week's question reads, Hi, Dr. Kim. I have a problem with dry mouth. What causes this and what can I do about it? Thanks so much for the question. I can't give you specific medical advice, but I can provide some guidance on why it might be happening. Persistent dry mouth, also known as hyposalivation, or in more extreme cases, xerostomia, can have various underlying causes. It's essential to identify the cause to effectively address the issue. The most common cause of dry mouth is prescription medications. Other common causes include medical conditions like Sjogren's syndrome, dehydration, aging, smoking or vaping, tobacco use, post-radiation therapy, mouth breathing, nerve damage, stress and anxiety, and even poor oral hygiene. If you feel like you have a dry mouth, please consult your dental professional as a lack of protective saliva increases your risk of getting cavities. Thanks so much again for the question. And if you, dear listener, would like more information on all things dental, head to carryfree.com where we've got more resources on dental health and our line of carry-free products that can help you keep a healthy smile. But right now, let's get back to the conversation. What happens is the dentist either sends us a scan or a photograph with a scale against it. So they could put a, a ruler beside the tooth right. in the photo, obviously yeah. a, a plan view yeah, shot yeah. or a perioprobe. So we can measure it. And then we manufacture an occlusal veneer with all the anatomy yeah. to that shape yep. so that it, it's the right shape. And then we supply them with a, a band that's this new band. So they do this prior to doing doing the preparation. Yes, they just take a photograph of the tooth. Yep. Tooth to pre, be yep. prepped. It's an yep. unprepped tooth. Send that yep. to us. Then we'll send them. You know, we could the do solution. Later. The, the solution. The prepackaged solution. The prepackaged solution. Yeah. And th- now, what they do is they cut the prep flat. Yep. yep. Um, fill any defects. They put the band on basically. Fill any defects. Get it yep. so it's a flat top with about three millimeters, two three millimeters clearance. What happens is that. Um, these bands have on the proximal top edge, they've got a long tab uh-huh. with multiple holes in it. Right. And now most times you don't need those because the band sits snugly against the neighboring tooth. Yeah. But sometimes you're doing a crown because there's already a gap. Yeah. And they oh, want yeah. it closed. Yeah, yeah. And you know what it's like. You're trying to pull oh, yeah. and pull yeah, yeah, and pull yeah, to get yeah. it. And quite often you pull or you push on the band with a burnish or something. And it doesn't work. You think the band is touching the next door tooth, but it's not actually touching the next door tooth. Take the band off and you've got to get. Or you end up with a, a contact point right at the very top on the marginal ridge, and then you go and trim it off and it's gone. So um, this idea is you've got a beautiful contour anyway, and if the band is showing signs it's pulling away, uh-huh. then you can put some bond on the adjacent occlusal surface and flowable on that surface. Not obviously no edge because you'd never get it off, but you just want a temporary bond. So if you put bond and flowable and with a probe, you pull on this long tab 
and the flow flowable flows into the holes in this long tab like you're it and you've literally glued it to the next door tooth and like dentists are control freaks anyone who's good as a dentist has got to be a control freak because you've got to control things if the matrix band is out of control what better idea than to glue it right. to the next door tooth uh, we've got a, a technique to get the uh, vertical dimension perfect as well but basically you put composite in, inside the band and as I won't go into the details of yeah, the technology, yeah, yeah, yeah. but we've got a way so that you just push that occlusal right. surface down. The band holds it in the right position. Yep. And, and you take cure. the band off and finish it. And you're done. Yeah. And it can, you can do it in half an hour. Yeah. Wow. That's beautiful. That is, you know, Simon, as I, we sit and look and we've talked about all these things, you're truly a disruptor. <laughs> I'm really, well, this week, no, last week, I came up with a final solution to how to get the occlusion, the occlusion right. All right. And I, was, I told Graham, didn't I? Very cool. It's so, so simple. But you've been at it for 12 yeah. years. Yeah. Well, that one, we've been at, at it for 12 years, but I yeah. think this new version is marvelous because yeah. it's going to be so easy and we'll be able to do them uh, in, in the US, Australia. Yeah. We'll be launching that in the, probably the next three or four months. But right. this new band is just fabulous for routine Restorations. I don't know if Simon has ever thought of himself as a disruptor. One of the first uses of the term was in Clayton M. Christensen's book, The Innovator's Dilemma, which was first published in 1997. Christensen used the term to describe a new technology or innovation that disrupts an existing market by displacing established market leaders and fundamentally changing the way products or services are delivered. The concept has since gained widespread use in business and technology circles to refer to innovations that create new markets or significantly alter existing ones. Often these innovators aren't thinking about the act of disruption itself, they're just thinking about making solutions that do things better than they were done before. From disruptor to daredevil, I don't think many people know that Simon wingfoils in his spare time. You might know wingfoiling as windsurfing. Spend some good time wingfoiling. I do want to spend less time uh, in making dental products at the moment. Uh -huh. Yeah, and spend a lot more time doing other things. I sort of enjoy some traveling, but I love it here so much. Yeah. And the beautiful home we've got. Oh, we're in a heated swimming pool and right on the waterfront. It's hard to go away, actually. You know, whenever I go away, I sort of think it's nicer at home. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm super, super lucky there. I mean, I understand why a lot of people do go, go on right. holiday because right. it's great where they're going. Right. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to spending a bit more time with the grandchildren. and uh -huh. I've got grandchildren who are, the oldest is 10 and uh -huh. the youngest is one. Yeah. I've got nine. Yeah. And are they, lo your grandchildren are local? They're all in New Zealand, yeah. but uh, seven of them are actually within a few miles from here. Oh, cool. Which is marvelous. Yeah, yeah. They, they, you're fortunate. They, uh, you know, my my kids have all come to come and live here. Yeah, yeah. Which is really cool. Oh, that's wonderful. Even my ex, Jan, has now moved here as well. All right. The mother of my first four kids. Yeah. So we see yeah. her quite often too. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I've got a marvelous family. Super lucky. Yeah. Yeah, I've got a beautiful house, got great people around me. I have a life is good. Life's great.
Simon, thank you so much for sharing your extraordinary life with us today. Thank you, Kim. Thanks for listening to part two of my interview with Dr. Simon McDonald. Simon is an incredible man who has such vision. He's another extraordinary person who can see better ways of doing things that others just can't. He's not normal, and we need more people like him in the world, spending hundreds of hours inventing what we need to make our lives better. Around here, we aim to inspire and create connections. We can't do it without you. If this conversation moved you, made you smile, or scratched that little itch of curiosity today, please share it with the extraordinary people in your life. And if you do one thing today, let it be extraordinary. <laughs>